Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zycam. Trust Zycam to knock out a cold at the first sneeze of the season. Other cold medicines only mask symptoms, but Zycam is homeopathic and clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at first sign. Find Zycam cold remedy products from rapid melts to elderberry medicated fruit drops at all major retailers, including Amazon. Zycam cold remedy products are safe and effective. Visit Zycam.com watch to receive a $2 coupon on your next cold remedy purchase. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, it's my, I wouldn't say it's my OTP podcast partner. But it's you're close. That's Andy, right? It's Juliet Levin. Hi, Chris. Thanks What's so much up? for having me. It's TV after dark. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> you want a goss? Uh, well, I, you know, it's been a weird year where it's like all it's all Bloomberg. It's all business, man. We we're just talking trends, acquisitions, and mergers. Mm. We're not really talking gossip this year. Okay. I, I guess you could do that. But I can get down whenever you want. I'm I'm here. I'm engaged with the culture. <laughs> I love TV. The idea for this pod is to just basically go through my top ten. Okay. And to have some debates about it. So okay. Allison Herman and I published our collective top 10 on mm-hmm. TheRinger.com. What was the biggest compromise you made in that list? I think it was really more where we, we very quickly came to our compromise top 10. Mm-hmm. It was a few for her, a few for me, and a few we agreed on. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was like, where do we place these? Uh, there was some debate about Mindhunter versus Tuca and Birdie mm-hmm. um, about where to put it. But I'm going to have Allison on because I think she has— a much different and much more like, you know, inter- a very interesting list to talk about. So sure. I'm going to have her on soon to do that. But today I just wanted to go through my 10. Nice. It's it's you time. <laughs> it is my time. It's very Tom Wagstams of you. What's his last name? Uh, Wagstams. Yeah. Wagstams. When you do a, a like a list pod, mm-hmm. do you like to start at one or start at 10 and count down? I don't know. I've spent so much time around Sean Fantasy. I've been brainwashed just to count down, start from the top. So start at one. Start at ten. Start at ten. I'm not going to do that. Okay. We're going to zag. Okay. Because <laughs> I want to. I, I love to zag. I think that this is a show, a year of two shows. You know, it's Succession and Fleabag. Allison and I put that as tied number one sure. on our list, partially to get some more some more titles in there. But we also um, did a, a ringer poll, uh-huh. or like a bra- kind of like a bracket of like what's your favorite show of the year, and it came down to Fleabag versus Succession. What's the What's the voting at? Succession won. Did it by a landslide or was it close? Uh, it was like two to one, but that's like really, I think, partially a reflection of our Twitter audience. And I think also a reflection of the reach of the shows, right? I mean, Succession yeah. is a Sunday night HBO show that had like week to week coverage and was built up a lot. And Fleabag was released quietly and was more word of mouth. It's just a really. Even though she's on the cover of Vogue and everything. Yeah, Wilders. she's on her way to extreme stardom. And like Fleabag will be like this quaint thing that she did in what her 30s. What do you 30s. think her ceiling is for stardom? Thieves? Yeah. Uh, I think it's. Really high in the UK. Like, I think, like, in the UK, she can be, like, a real household name and, like, a like a, like a Jennifer Aniston type there. Hmm. Who We're, do you think the most famous British actress is right now in England? Helen Mirren. I guess. But you think it's, like, Keely Hawes? No. I don't think it's Keely Hawes. I think she's, she's really on the most famous show. She's on the most popular show Bodyguard? last Bodyguard? Yeah. Um, maybe the Down Abbey Gals. That show is really popular. Yeah. But, like— Dockery can't go anywhere in London. Yeah, seriously. And also she had like she had like a tragedy befall her. So I feel Did like she? 
Yeah, a couple years ago, her fiance died of cancer. Oh my god! Yeah, horrible. I just feel like they're they're really really famous there. I think Olivia Coleman is also incredibly famous. Oh, it's got to be Olivia Coleman. What yeah. are we talking about? Because wasn't she? She's been on everything. She was on Broadchurch. Yeah, Broadchurch was like Fleabag. one of those like everyone in England watched the show. Like you, yeah. every once in a while, you'll get the like the ratings come in, and it's like literally three out of four houses watch the show. And Broadchurch is phenomenal. Yeah, the it was, first season is incredible. It sort of started a wave of imports. I think that yeah. that made. That also like gave Netflix a currency because it was like the place to see Broadchurch. You has know? She, she's never done a Black Mirror, has she? No, she hasn't. But was she in Doctor Who or did I make that up? Uh, she was not. She, I don't believe she was considered to be a Doctor Who, though, wasn't she? Yeah, and the most recent Doctor Who's uh, Jodie Whittaker. Jodie Whittaker. She was on Broadchurch. Right. When Olivia Coleman was on. She was the mom. Right. So Olivia Coleman has just had like an absolutely stunning year, and I we've already discussed it, and you've discussed it at length, Amanda. I fucking love. Olivia Coleman is the queen. <laughs> I I wish that Olivia Coleman and Tobias Menzies were the actual monarchs. It would be so much better. But that would be bummers for them because then they would have all the baggage attached to it. <laughs> totally. So it's these people that you love would actually be like possible. <laughs> yeah. But I think back to Phoebe Waller-Bridge and to your question, it's such a crazy testament to her charisma and her mm-hmm. talent. Like she's the definition of like pro- she has prodigious gifts. It's like her and LeBron James. And uh Olivia Coleman is sensational on Fleabag, and it's like almost an afterthought. Yeah, and like I like like you kind of forget that she's on half the episodes, and she kind of like makes the the much vaunted season premiere of season two really saying Olivia Coleman, she's excellent. In, yes. in the restaurant. Yes, let's talk a little bit about this in relationship with Succession. I think in some ways, this is a conversation about two different ways to appreciate television. Like Succession is to the extent of a, of a 2010s show, is a very old-school show. Mm-hmm. It's very much in the classic mold of these HBO Sunday Night Dramas that have conversation points, like, real, like, they have real, like, momentum within the culture, it feels like. Uh, and then you have something like Fleabag that's almost completely opposite in terms of its formal innovation, in terms of its being, like, this 25 to 32-minute show that gets put up at once. You can watch it as, like, a novella. You can watch it in these little installments. Do you have a preference between the two, or is it like a is it like picking your favorites? I don't have necessarily a preference between the shows. I could rank them. I could rank anything, you okay. know. But I do think I have a strong preference for week to week viewing versus binging, mm-hmm. especially with a thirty minute show like Fleabag. I think I would appreciate it way more and have more affection for it if I had watched it over the course of six weeks. Do you think it works as well? Versus, um, you know, I think it does. I do. I mean, Atlanta does. Yeah, you know, and I. And I, 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 I I've I've always watched Atlanta week to week, and it has that that sh- shorter form, you know, runtime. I particularly go, could have gone for more psychic time with the hot priest. Mm-hmm. I feel like the run of the hot priest was too short, and not even because I'm like, oh, he's so hot, but that's just like probably the most charming and enchanting love story that I can think of in a really long time. Yeah, it so- certainly feels the most original on television in a long time. Yeah, and it came and went too quickly. Imagine if you had spent six weeks building up to the Fox moment at the end of the show. Yeah. I think that was an amazing payoff, and I know that you really loved it, but I think it would have been even stronger if you had to wait week to week to see it. Yeah. Do you think that it's— I was. We were having a a separate conversation today about television, me and Andy, and and, uh, I was was like, you know what? Fleabag in some ways was the most talked about show of the year. Like I felt like the most people were like, I couldn't, I can, I can stop. I I can talk about Fleabag all day long, but the things that Fleabag were about were a little bit still out of touching distance in the conversations. Like, Mm -hmm. do you feel like you had more conversations about people's relationship to religion around Fleabag? 
No, definitely yeah, not. Yeah, right? No. It was like more all. like I loved Fleabag. I loved what it said about like the human heart. Yeah, and I think him being a priest was almost like a gag. It didn't, sure. didn't really sink in that he's a priest. And like, I don't think his, well, I guess the end is a little bit up for d- debate, but I interpret it as him choosing his faith. Mm-hmm. And I don't think like the conversation about what it's like, what it means to choose faith has really penetrated very far. I don't think people are really talking about that. Yeah. I mean, I I think that the parallel between the impossibility of knowing and loving God and the leap of faith people take to do that and the sort of leap of faith that's necessary for the Fleabag character to find some sort of inner peace, which is to, like, allow herself to love and be loved by anyone. Yeah. Is, is like, the kind of mirror image that we're we're asked to see, but— yeah, it also ends with such like sort of an ellipsis that it's it's not final. It doesn't feel like there's like a closing sort of epilogue on it. Uh, this is like my own fault, but like I feel like I didn't get enough time to like let some of these things sink in. Like the show is such a revelation and the physical comedy and physical acting of Phoebe Waller-Bridge is like on the same level as, as Michael Richards as Kramer, I would say. <laughs> I, but like I mean that is a true compliment. Sure. But, like, it just went by so quickly because each episode, to its credit, is, like, a really tidy, perfect 25 minutes, and then it's kind of over. So I think, like you were saying, like, it does really go back to, like, how do you consume TV? And I I, I would think I'm leaning towards picking Succession as, like, the show of the year because of the way it was rolled out and the way that I was able to, like, live in that world for a longer period of time. Yeah, you know, at the end of Succession, I, I didn't really—I wouldn't— in no way am I calling it like I caught some flack, but I a couple of people were like, don't try to yellow king this, bro. Like, basically don't have... Because at the end, I was like, oh, do you think that uh, Kendall and Shiv are working together and mm-hmm. that, like, we're going to kind of see the grand plan revealed here? And that was largely just based on, like, what transpired between them in the, the Safe Room episode, which is, sure. I, I think, my favorite episode of of TV this year. Um. But, you know, the the way people enjoy and interpret succession is, is interesting. Some people really like it just as, like, I like the one-liners. I like the vibe. I like the jokes. And then there's, like, the more of the family stuff. Or there's, just like, the more of the billions kind of rich person 1% porn that can happen where you're watching, like, Turnhaven and watching the Pierces and the, and the Roys interacting. Why do you watch succession? Or what do you like most about watching it? I think my favorite thing about succession is its ability to surprise me still. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's my favorite scene. I think my favorite scene was when uh, Tom and Connor are telling Cousin Greg that uh, $5 million is bad. That's probably, That was just, like, so funny and, like, really on the nose, but without being too meta. Uh, I just really, I really liked that. And I actually didn't really like the Boar on the Floor episode that much. It was sort of, like, too garish for me and, like, too aggressive. I'm not really into Logan. But what I was going to say is I did not see Kendall's rap coming at all. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so out of character for him. This is so weird. And I thought about it. I was like, no, actually, it's not out of character. No, it's James Murdoch. Yeah. yeah. And, like, part of the problem is also that Kendall is, like, just flies off the handle. He's out of control. He's erratic, blah, blah, blah. And I just didn't see that coming. And it was so fun. And, like, that is an awesome, awesome episode. Yeah. I, I loved it. And— um, there just is like a, a little bit more frivolity, I think, in Succession that I really enjoyed in this current moment. That's the line it walks. And it, yeah. I think that, there, you know, when you watch like Veep, which is such a perfect show and, and came to a close this year, and I, I recommend people check out Allison's piece about uh, shows coming to an end on the site because it was a really excellent survey of a bunch of things that I didn't even realize that many shows ended this year. When you watch Veep, sometimes, like, the quality of one-liner supersedes the quality of the character. Not necessarily in the way that the characters are written, but that 
at the expense of having an amazing joke. It right. kind of like no no character has any actual like compass. I don't, moral or otherwise, but like Dan on Veep is just going to always go for the joke and do the most fucked up thing. And even though that sort of fits for his character, it sometimes pushes beyond the point of believability. Right. Did you ever feel like Succession had that? Yeah. I mean, some of the logistical stuff, like the fact that they're basically always traveling to a different place. Like, sure. I, that, even that to me seemed like, I know that rich people do that. Like there's like always, like there are actual jet setters in this world. Mm-hmm. But some of the sort of like extreme decadence of like also, oh, Stewie's in Greece. Like, let's just go over there. Or it's like, we have to go do this meeting in London. Yeah. Because I say so. Yeah, right. def- definitely. Like that kind of stuff I thought was like a little beyond the pale. Also, I think the constant, like the kind of, constant convening of the family is also a little a little out there mm-hmm. but what i really love about both these shows is they feel like theater and in like the literal sense of and like, a lot of the, the actors the are well i mean theater at least actors, you know phoebe yeah. waller bridge comes from theater yeah andrew scott does theater uh you know obviously kieran culkin does theater jake cameron Jake Smith, Smith, obviously obviously theater. yeah brian cox what by, do you think by about, the way yeah can we just do a brief aside of course did you ever see This Is Our Youth with, this is our youth I did with not. Karen Culkin? The Kenny Lonergan? Yeah, because it's Lonergan. Yeah. I was just in that theater last week seeing Darren Brown at the same court theater on 48th oh, right. okay. Street. Or, yeah, 48th. I never really put it together until recently, and I was like, oh, right. Like, there's, like, all these connections there. Yeah. But, she talked uh, When uh, Jay came on, she talked a little bit about, like, how, how wild it was to, like, to watch the show with Kenneth and also with her daughter. So crazy, because they know Karen, obviously. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I think the way that— uh, both shows are ultimately, and you guys wrote about this in your piece, like how they both are tragic comedies, basically. But to me, they're both ultimately tragic. Yeah. And um, they're just so Shakespearean. They're both, I think one of the reasons they're so celebrated is they have a lot of really classical tropes in them that have been really well interpolated for the 21st century. Of course, yeah. And it's it's kind of like, I feel like moved talking about both of them. They're both like huge triumphs and, and feats. And I, I think, like, just the craft that goes into them is um, apparent when you stand back, but like, but it's just so purely enjoyable when you're watching Yeah, them. They, they both provide such multifaceted levels of, of enjoyment. Like, you can watch Succession as a drama. You can watch it as a comedy. You can watch it as a piece of theater, as a piece of filmmaking. It's yeah. just—it's really—it's uh, so—it's so rewarding. What do you think about the idea— you know, Succession, if it was 2009 or 10, would be expected to last for six years, mm-hmm. seven years. How many are they going to do? Have they said? I have no idea, but I think that there is something of a ticking clock on it because I don't know how many years you can have Logan in decline. Or I was going to say someone needs to die. So the, half, the first half of the season, Logan's obviously in a coma in the first season. Comes out, regains his strength, is at full strength in the second season, but is obviously teetering throughout the second season. Kendall has now done two coups, basically. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid repeating yourself? Because I don't think that this is a show that A, wants to do that, or B, feels the need to do that. Because TV now, I don't think people are like, yeah, you know, we just gotta, we gotta run this trope back because people love right. this show. So, dial it up again. Brian Cox, fourth heart attack for Logan, you know? Like, yeah. I don't think they're gonna do that. I think he has to die. And I, I've said this for a while. And I've, Do you and think the show ends if he dies? No, I don't think so. I think there's just a different level of infighting. I don't know. Like I'm, I know that Brian Cox is an excellent actor, but I just don't really enjoy Logan that much. Mm-hmm. He's not that interesting to me. I think he's like in many ways the most predictable character, and um, he's also mean. I think like I think when people are like, "Why would I?" The one of the critiques of Succession is like, "You don't, you can't root for any of the people." 
Yeah, I, I, I know that critique. That's like, yeah. That is the critique, and I think it's because of Logan, like, honestly. Yeah. Because I think, like, should you be devoting your energy to like, rooting to rooting for Kendall or Tom or Shiv or whomever? I don't know, but, I, but like, you could. I think you could make the case. It's hard to make that case with Logan. To answer your question, though, I think someone has to die. And in season three, I think, like, they're—I think that one— thing that's amazing about the show is like in some ways the stakes are like they're so high that they're low it's like like for for greg like he's still gonna be rich no matter what yeah i'm sure i'm kind of curious like how do you impose like really life or death stakes well they've inoculated the show somewhat from real world even though obviously the real world influences the show quite a bit there's a way to watch it and not quite see it as a one-to-one fox news situation even though they make explicit connections yeah and like is it weird that we just kind of moved on from the death at the end of season one? Well, I mean, I think that that goes into your understanding of the Kendall character, right? Yeah. And and just the sort of the amount of crap in between him and his father that's still not out there. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah, it, it's waiting for definitely that to come out. it's it's hanging over it. That reminds me of Breaking Bad, where I was always waiting for Jesse to find out that Walt killed Jane, and he never really did. Yeah, like that's like acknowledges the moment where Walt really turned, of course, but he never really did. And I wonder if this will hangover Kendall is like just he'll never be able to like like does he try to basically keep it a secret or does he own it yeah yeah basically we can talk about some of the other shows on my list like I'd love to hear I found that my top 10 is pretty uh it feels like it's in an aquarium it's like in a it's like it's almost behind bars somewhere because the top 10 is like these were with a few exceptions I don't think particularly like debatably debatable shows the only two on my top 10 that I think people would probably be like what the fuck are too old to die young. Well, can you just give your full list? Yeah, sure. So, Fleabag and Succession, I, I have... I think you're more of a Fleabag guy. I'm going to be I, honest. I have Fleabag as, like, an experience and as, like, a note-perfect show with the understanding that they took less shots, you know? Yeah. Like, so, Succession is definitely, like, well, you know, you put up hardened numbers, like, sure. you're going to miss some, but Fleabag went out there and went, you know, 10 for 15 and scored 25 points and 10 rebounds or whatever. Uh... The next three, the next batch is, and this is like for sure, is Mindhunter, Watchmen, and Unbelievable. Mm. Mindhunter, I think in any other year would be the show of the year. I think that it got better in its second season, which is sort of amazing to imagine because the first season was so good. This season focused more on Holt McElhinney's character um, from Jonathan Groff's character in the first season. Did you watch any of Mindhunter? I haven't, but I'm definitely going to because I fucking love Groff, obviously. Yeah. I'm just trying so hard to see him in Little Shop of Horrors. TBD if it'll work out. And, I mean, it's just amazing that Groff and Fincher are on Netflix. Yeah. It's, it's just and wild. So Fincher directed the first few. Andrew Dominic came in and directed one episode in the middle of the season. And then the last four episodes are all directed by Carl Franklin, who's a veteran director who directed one of my favorite noir movies called One False Move that came back out back in the 90s. He came on The Watch a little while ago. And he basically does a suite of episodes that's, more or less Groff helping investigate the Atlanta child murders in the early 1980s. And even though it was shot in Pittsburgh, like the recreation of period detail in Atlanta, I was talking with our buddy Rembert about it. And he was like, it's amazing, like what they did with the Omni Mall and everything. So I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Okay. I was kind of wondering though, like the reaction to Fleabag and Succession has been so passionate this year. And this is, this might be like a false construct. Do you think that people have a little bit of, um, period piece fatigue. Interesting. Like, as our own time period gets more and more, not only chaotic, but seemingly, like, uh, crucial, 
You know, sometimes you can go three years of your life and you're like, oh, we're just kind of like moving through it. And then you watch Mad Men and you're like, wow, it's like really, you can just see modernity being explained here. Well, but I wonder whether or not Fleabag and Succession say something about the modern psyche that some period pieces don't. I think, I think that's interesting. I think Fleabag and Succession offer a really helpful frame and prism to understand life day to day, mm-hmm. whether you're rich or not, whether you are a sex addict who uh, led to the death of your best friend and opened a hamster cafe or not. Right. Like, um, Fleabag should get together with Kendall. Oh, my God. <laughs> that would be incredible. Um, I think they just, they they help you understand things that you feel and that you see that maybe you didn't, weren't able to uh, process or just sort of recognize and mm-hmm. I think that's why one of the reasons why they're both really powerful. I I know that seems like perhaps a ridiculous thing to say about succession, but I do think the family drama and just the sort of really classic tragedy of it uh is familiar in a way that people like might not recognize. But and so I think to that's one of the reasons those shows are so popular. I think I mean I think the people's love of the crown is kind of a uh counterpoint to that. Yeah. I think it depends on the show. I think that in some ways doing a period piece is almost like a cheap way to, like, go for prestige. And and so to that extent, it's not helpful. But I, I think the recent history hits really well. Like, sure. Like, Unbelievable is recent history. Yeah. Well, I mean, Unbelievable would go into—I could even throw into that category of the upper two, where it's like, not only is it recent history, but it actually also—and, you know, Kaya was talking about this today—it actually has a very 2019 perspective on the crime show— tropes that we've kind of come to really like especially on this show like treated as sacred text you know like whether it's True Detective or or Mindhunter or whatever where it's just like all about the investigators and the people who are victims of the crimes are kind of like besides the point because it's all about the psychology of the of the either the criminal or the investigator but the the victim is kind of pushed to the side and mine you know Unbelievable uses the victim not necessarily as this like manipulative exploitive part of the show, but as like the sort of source of all the energy and fury and anger and also like the what makes these detectives persist with things. Right. Is by going through that 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 Caitlin Deaver character. Right. I also think, I mean, I sound like just like an old Luddite and actually Allison and Miles wrote about this too, but that's another show that if it had been parceled out week by week would have been so much bigger. Like there's nothing, particularly like this is, true with, like, you can see it with the popularity of the podcast, My Favorite Murder. Like, I think there's a specific female audience for, like, that kind of show that just moves on quickly or misses it because it's n- it doesn't have time to build, like, a groundswell, you know? The wave crashes so quickly. It doesn't even really—like, it like, almost like the crest is so short, you know? Kaya, you might be the biggest unbelievable fan in this room. Like, would you have been—do you think you would have found it as, like, compelling if you watched it week to week? Yeah, absolutely. And I did— I didn't uh, binge it all in one sitting. I kind of spaced it out. Did you? Over a couple weeks, yeah. Because I find that, like, I wonder if they would have redone parts of the pilot if that was the case. Mm -hmm. Because the pilot is definitely made in the Netflix mode of you immediately start the next one because you're like, wait, I got to find out. Like, there has to be some— It lays out a lot, right? Yeah, but, like, I don't even think— Tony Collette is in the first she's, one. She's not. I don't. Yeah. I don't think Mary Weaver is either. It's, yeah, she's not. Right. I think yeah. they both show up in the first scene of the second one. So. And that's. But on the other hand, it's such an affecting show because you get a lot of time, and you and you really have a front seat to the pain, like the literal pain of Caitlin Deaver's yeah. character in the first episode. And it's so procedural. Yeah. Everything about it is so like. 
this is everything that this, this girl is experiencing. And it's like you're kind of being moved through it. And it's not as highly stylized as Mindhunter, but in some ways, it's, you know, in many ways, it's just so much more human than Mindhunter. Because so, like the, even the detectives in Mindhunter are intentionally holding themselves at a distance because they are thinking about the people that they're investigating and that they're interviewing as data points within this research that they're right. presenting about the behavioral sciences of, of serial killers, right. essentially. And also, isn't Mindhunter like a pretty dark show? Like visually? Visually, yeah. Uh, it's very moody. So yeah, it's it's very like, it takes the sort of, um, like at the time, modern architecture and interior design of the late 70s and 80s and like all the browns and yellows and desk lamps and kind of, you know, leans into that really hard. Because one thing that I found really striking but unbelievable was when Merritt Weaver goes to team up with Tony Collette. She yeah. goes to her office in Colorado and um, there's really tall windows and it's really bright yeah. in her office. And that's a like, really unusual look for a crime show. For sure. Like um, even Dexter, which I loved, was a real contrast between like the oversaturated sun of Miami and then like the really dark spaces that Dexter mm -hmm. inhabited. It's not like light to be shining through is really not common. And that's like a very bright show. And there it's not like really interesting kind of like head to head. Like what where does your sensibility lie between Mindhunter and Unbelievable? Yeah, sense. they could have made a version of Unbelievable that was like Mindhunter or was like True Detective and it was like every frame is completely composed out of its mind symmetry and like, you know, crows flying around in the background. But they kind of make it seem like this is what like it's a little bit frontiersy, but it's also a little bit expert chain malls and like, you know, the, office parks yeah. and the and, frontier note's a really good one. I was gonna say it's very small D democratic. Like there's the one episode that goes out of the way to give credit to the intern for like having a break in the case. Yeah. And unbelievable. And I think it emphasizes um how the teamwork of the two female detectives le leading that team really triumphed over the two men who just sort of like went off on their own or whatever. Sure. And it was really like about like this is how the work is done. It kind of in some ways reminded me of Hurt Locker similarly, where it was a lot about like the like very small day-to-day -day yeah. minutia of doing a really hard job, essentially. Well, both Mindhunter and Unbelievable are true crime in the sense that they don't do a lot of overwriting outside of what you think is basically like in the case files. So Courtney Miles, who wrote a lot of the se second season of Mindhunter, and I know that Michael Shabon and I at Waldman worked on the the, the season of yeah. of, Mine of uh, Unbelievable. But you wouldn't think that there was a lot of like quote-unquote screenwriting going on, even right. though they feel note perfect. It feels like this is realistically what this cop would be talking about at this given moment. There's right. not like a speech about like justice. There's not a speech. I mean, if they, they are saying those things, they're saying them as part of like their daily dialogue. Right. Right. And it's it's not like showy mm -hmm. in any way. There's no like um, There's no Holmes. Sorkin monologues. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's take a quick break uh, to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back to keep going through this top 10. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment, available now. Jedi Fallen Order is the Star Wars game that you've been waiting for, taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope. You play as Cal Kestis, a Jedi Padawan turned fugitive. After narrowly escaping Order 66 and the Jedi Purge, you're on a quest to rebuild the Jedi Order, wield a lightsaber, hone iconic force powers, and complete your training to become a powerful Jedi, all while staying one step ahead of the Empire. Become a Jedi in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, available now on Xbox One, PS4, and PC, rated T14. Today's episode of The Watch 
is brought to you by American Express. I am one of the lucky few with a commute in LA that only takes about 15 minutes. Do not hate me because I'm beautiful. But I still make the most of my drive by listening to my favorite podcasts. I'll get a head start on shows like House of Carbs, Binge Mode, or The Big Picture. And then I'll finish up the episode when I get into the office. It's a great way to ease myself into the day. No matter what your morning commute looks like, you can ease your mind a little bit knowing that with Green from Amex, you're getting three times points on travel, including transit like taxis, ride shares, subway swipes, and even ferry rides for those of you who get to enjoy a nice breeze on your way to work. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash green from Amex. Terms apply. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Watchmen. Can't get enough of HBO's Watchmen. Now you can go deeper inside the show. Critics have called your new TV obsession with the official Watchmen podcast. Hosted by Watchmen executive producer and writer Damon Lendeloff and Craig Mazin, the creator of Chernobyl. The new podcast explores narrative choices, uncovers Easter eggs, and examines the show's connection to the groundbreaking graphic novel and to modern events. A reimagining of the world originally seen in the groundbreaking 1980s graphic novel of the same name, Watchmen is set in an alternate history of present-day America where the lines between vigilantes and mass crime fighters are blurred and the only true superhero is nowhere to be found on Earth. Stylized, darkly funny, and profoundly human, the series stars Regina King, Gene Smart, Don Johnson, and Jeremy Irons and features music from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Watchmen is available on streaming and on demand and catch new episodes Sundays at 9 p.m. on HBO. Then listen to the official Watchmen podcast available on all major podcast platforms. All right, we're back with Juliet. We're going through my top 10, but we're also having a just a general conversation about TV. It's it's just a wonderful format, wonderful medium. Um, So, so far, the top 10 I have here is Fleabag Succession, Mindhunter, Watchmen, Unbelievable. Uh, we talk about Watchmen every week, uh, so it's it does we don't need to go too far into that. Uh, I think it's a remarkable show. Unbelievable, we just talked about. Six, seven, and eight, I have Too Old to Die Young, Russian Doll, and The Crown. I, I think four people have watched Too Old to Die Young. One of them might be the person who made it. <laughs> then me and Miles Stur- Surrey, and I, I, there's, I'm sure it's some other like Zach Barron film Twitter. He's watched some of them. I don't know if he finished it. It's uh, a singular, singular show. I don't even know if I recommend it. I don't even know if it really <laughs> belongs this high. No, because the thing is, is that everything that we kind of think that we go to pop culture for, it tests. Is it, it's it's beyond boring. I mean, scenes that should take. 27 seconds take seven and a half minutes. There are often long pat panning tracking shots that go up and down a street just to come back to watch Miles Teller spit and then he gets in a car and drives off. Like it's profoundly anti-entertainment in places. I think it's also very much a commentary on the cinematic excesses indulged in by filmmakers when they're making art about this kind of stuff, namely like cops, cartels, drugs crime law enforcement kind of thing. Then the second half of the series gets pretty psychedelic and almost uh, sci-fi in certain places. There's a lot of mythological stuff going on in it. If you, for some reason, have the patience to try and rock with it, like I would say, like if if you got through Twin Peaks The Return, it might not have as much to say about um, loss and pain, but it, it, it it is a pretty profound show. Like I did find... I did find it to be the most beautiful thing that I saw this year. And since we've kind of gotten into this place where a lot of directors are making the move into television and using it as their canvas, 
it's it's a remarkable thing to watch. Raffin, baby. Yeah, Nicholas Wending. Um, is that did he drop the Raffin? No, it's it's because it, every episode it goes hashtag NWR. Oh, I see. That's how he introduces it. Oh my god, that's really that's that's interesting though because you just describe someone who is a complete, not even an iconoclast, but just sort of like an ant like an anti director. Yes, who is so disdainful that it's hostile towards the world in which he operates. Well, it's almost like he made Drive, and he's like. He's he's like didn't trapped he, in that world or something. Did he make another like horribly depressing Ryan Gosling movie as well? Only God forgives. What about the Place Beyond the Pines? Did he make that? That was Derek C. in France. No, oh. uh, but, two Grantland heroes: Nicholas Wending Reffin, N- Reffing Wenden, Wending Reffin. Yeah, and Derek C. in France. Yeah, we love. We, I, I, we, I, we stand. <laughs> I think I think I did not read those articles on Grantland.com, uh, but I know they existed. Yeah, but I think that there a lot of it is like he's both capable of. Doing almost this like Tony Scott thing where he makes almost everything like erotic and beautiful, but almost like loads it as well. He must have been furious when he saw that his network, Amazon, right, mm-hmm. put a hashtag on his episode. No, I think he did that himself. I don't think that anything in this these— This man is sick. So... I, I, that's just like an insane thing to do <laughs> when you're so disdainful of your own culture. And then you're like, hashtag, that's me being—that's like me being like— Twitter is bad, and we need to get rid of it. It is enabling our president, and he is dangerous, and I cannot believe— That's like half of Twitter right now. And if you agree with me, <laughs> respond by saying, hashtag, get off Twitter. President like, Hatch. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like—it's a lot like the embodiment of Louise Mensch, but, like, it's just unbelievable. That's really, like, actually an insane person. So it's also an interesting—the too-old-to-die young thing, I kind of mentioned this in my blurb about it in the top ten— is the too old to die young thing is even though it was greenlit, I think three years ago or something. It is actually like an. Uh, a, it was probably greenlit on like October thirty first, twenty sixteen. But and it's everything a, changed ten days later. It's a. It's like a. It's an artifact in a museum now. Like Amazon will never let Nicholas Wedding Ruffin make something like this again. It's going to be rare to see any director get this kind of creative leeway. Like I know Netflix, like the the rap with like them is like, oh yeah, you can just do what you want. You don't get any notes, but like. A, sometimes that's bad. And B, I don't think that's the case. And I don't think it's the case at Amazon anymore. I think that they're moving much more into like a more a safer zone where they're trying to find like either big blockbusters like Jack Ryan or beloved critically acclaimed shows like Maisel or Catastrophe. Or and the bag, yeah. Yeah, right. So Too Old to Die Young is just like, there's never been anything like it. I don't know if there will ever be anything else like it. And that's why I recommend it. Russian Doll. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Why no. not? Cannot stand Natasha Leon. Just too much, too much downtown New York for you. It's just, just a lot of like you're an bad, uptown girl. A lot of bad hair. <laughs> I am an uptown girl. I'm also a Manhattan girl. I'm proud. Like Manhattan's a great place. Um, so she though, she's Alphabet C for life. This is good because I really want to talk about Orange Is the New Black. Can, okay. I, Which I also watched some of this last season and especially the finale, and it was oh my god, amazing. I was saying to Kaya, I think it's like the most underappreciated thing of the year. The finale. Yeah, and Natasha. Major spoiler alert. Major, major, major. Blah, blah, blah. If you're going to watch it. Skip. We'll tell you at some point when you come back in. Okay. Natasha Leone's death yeah. is the second most upsetting thing that happens in that season after Blanca being deported. Yeah. The ice stuff in season seven is probably 
outside of all the devastating, amazing, and crucial reporting that's been done, like the probably the most compelling piece of creative work mm-hmm. about, about um, I think, this Im- the immigration crisis in our country. Um, it's absolutely devastating. But the heart of this season, it's sort of like two stories that then sort of diverge. One is Tasty. And the other is Natasha Tasty, who's kind of like descending back into criminality. Yes. Said, yeah. I skipped all of the seasons that had to do with the riot. Oh, because there was like an entire season there was set like, during the riot, right? Yeah. There was basically like there were like three seasons that I think the fulcrum of which was this riot, in which Poussey died mm-hmm. in jail. And that sent Tasty into like this just absolute fugue state. Mm-hmm. She just comes out of it in the final season. She's uh, starting to get her GED. She's like engaged in being alive again. It's really moving and then a lot of stuff happens with her and then ultimately and she's supposed to get out and she doesn't all this stuff. It's just an amazing like tying up of stories and I think this relates to what you're just saying because first of all I really can't stand Natasha Leone. however I do like her on this show. I mm-hmm. think um, it, it the writing just really suits her strengths and when she dies it's genuinely devastating. Mm-hmm. It's really sad. It's like a character that the amazing thing about the show is it sort of created a world. I um and the people who populated it were, you know, you zigged around with the different people. And when she leaves, it, it, it's sort of like, well, and actually the show does need to end now because she's gone. And it's, yeah. And it's really, it's really sad. That show has always kind of like had an interesting thing for me where it was obviously built around Taylor Schilling in the early seasons. And then it just, it, it did the thing that you kind of want to see from more shows, which is, doesn't always have to be about this main character that we started out with. Totally. Not only does it not really support it for her to always be, be going back into like these longer prison sentences. She's also like the least likable character. But yeah, once you find an ensemble like that, there's no reason you can't explore it with a lot of depth and care. Yeah, and and they do a really good job. But what made me think of it, not only Natasha Leone, it's totally a relic of a past. Like Netflix will not make a show like that again with like this huge sprawling cast that's like based on a niche book. Like, that was real, to use some it's MCU the, terminology, phase one. Yeah, and that's and like, it's, it's over. It's the catch-22 of of successful shows is that, and you and I have seen it how many times with shows that we love, you're the big proponent of recasting roles. Yeah. But if a show is popular enough to keep going, you're just going to find that the people on it want to do different stuff eventually. Right. And I'm, I'm actually, like, pretty... I wish more things were like Sherlock. I, were, I wish more things were like, we might just take three years off. I know. And it's like Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Don't go back into the well. Stick to your guns. Well, I actually, I'm actually anti-bringing Fleabag back. Yeah, me too. That's okay. what I'm saying. Yeah. She, and she's Stick saying no. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I it. think that it, just with a show like, uh, you're right. Orange is the New Black is the kind of thing that we're not going to see. Like, this has been on for seven years people have long-term relationships to these characters that are like have been evolving over like almost a decade. And then when you watch that final episode and the and that epilogue of the the sort of goodbye shots of all the characters, you're like holy shit, like the, like I've like basically had these people in my life for most of this decade. Yeah. Also like on a personal level, I really remember our moment at Grantland when that and House of Cards dropped and you we were like holy shit, like this is different and new yeah. and I hate this Regina Spector song, but wow, like every episode I need to keep going. I know. I feel like I felt like so cracked out the weekend that House of Cards came out and I was so skeptical about it. I was like, come on. I, know. I mean like it's like even though I love David Fincher, I'm like how good could this be? Yeah. And then like 7 hours later, like I was like, oh, I didn't get out of bed today. You and, know? They, and they have like the viral marketing <laughs> yeah. where they have like the lawn signs on oh, in that's LA. Right and everything. Orange is the New Black and House of Cards were like a real thing. Obviously, House of Cards has really been complicated by the Kevin Spacey um, illegality and and everything with him. But that was a real TV moment. And I, I think 
and I, I also think there's something really ceremonial about Natasha Leone moving on from this phase one Netflix show to like a, a real, like whatever phase we're in now Netflix show. I think it's the, I have a, I already have a plan slash Bible for this. Yeah. So ordinarily, like in years past, you would see people be like, pitch this show. We all joined it. It was a success. We just want to keep doing it for as long as we can. And then maybe that has some attrition. I think that they've been pretty clear. If I remember Leslie Headland when she came on, they were like, there, there's a three-season plan for Russian Doll. We have it mapped out. And that's kind of hard to fathom right now because the, the first season feels pretty, it ends like pretty, it has some finality, but also I'm like, I don't really know how far, much farther you can go with this without it being like high, high key, like sci-fi of like yeah. timelines and stuff. But for the most part, I think that the thing I, I really responded to about Russian Doll was that it felt like it was the show that Natasha Leone had been waiting her whole life to mm. make. Like it had so much of her love and affection for the area, the New York City, that, that area of New York City, and the kind of characters that you find in bars and in bodegas and in parks around there. And she is the kind of person who's just like smoking a cigarette with like anybody on the corner. Like it's it's not weird to see her out in New York City. Like she's like a real New York character and the show really represents that. So unbelievable, too old to die, young Russian doll at seven. Let's talk about The Crown. Okay. I've talked about The Crown a lot already, so I just want to open up the floor. How did you feel about the season three? This is by far my favorite season. There's not there's nothing, I have no desire to go back to the Claire Foy era whatsoever. My only problem is I'm a royal watcher, as discussed at length on the podcast jam session, part of Bringer Dish. And I know that Charles and Philip are two crazy philandering uh, <laughs> egomaniacs that are assholes. I know that about them. And Tobias Menzies is so captivating as Prince Philip. And I, this young lad who has name I, I haven't cared to learn. Josh O'Connor. Josh O'Connor is. Yeah. So committed as Prince Charles. Tom Holland, watch your fucking back. Yeah. His fi- <laughs> Josh O'Connor's facial expressions. It's like, I can tell he sat down at his computer and just watched as many videos as Prince Charles as possible on YouTube. I hope that Josh O'Connor just does like a Kingsman next so that we can see how good he is in the crown. He, yeah, I mean... Like, they, I want to see him do something that doesn't involve, like, whatever work he obviously put into season three of The Crown yeah. so that we can be like, holy crap, that guy, like, basically became Prince Charles. Those two dudes were such revelations to me that I feel bad because, <laughs> because I know that they're playing assholes. And moreover, Olivia Coleman is is just, like, the best working actress right now. Yeah. I, I think there is no one else on her level. Force of fucking nature. She, from her run from The Favorite to Fleabag to everything else she's been doing. She did something else that was really big, I can't remember, to now being the another queen. She's played two queens in the span of a year, and she's crushed both of them. She is a real charmer in person. She seems like the kind of person that her coworkers love to work with based on how uh, much Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge all love her. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even mentioned Helena Bottom Carter, who kind of overdoes it at the beginning of the season, but then her final episode where she's uh, separating from Lord Snowden and just the way that she and Olivia Coleman play off each other in the se- this season They have finale incredible chemistry. It's just so beautiful. I... I loved it so, so much. I, I think it's sort of like what a great um, show should be. And I don't care that they've taken liberties with history. That's what I was going to ask you about ethics and crown watching. Sure. So, you know, she's, th- there is some documentation. Amanda and I talked about this a lot when we were recapping the show. There's documentation that she obviously had a lot of regrets, for instance, about Aberfan. how she reacted to Aberfan. And then, like, even 
something like Margaret's speech at the end where she basically explains, she makes a case for the monarchy, you know, mm-hmm. to, to before the jubilee and the end of the season. Um, those are obviously moments where Peter Morgan's editorializing to some extent. Yeah, it's a dramatist. Yeah, but the, those are the th- kinds of moments that make this show more than just like recreations. Here's what I'll say about that. My mother is a uh, like an amateur Elizabethan scholar. Okay, and it's not like it's not like Henry VIII or Queen Elizabeth or any of the Catherines were like keeping copious notes, you know. <laughs> sure. And yet, people feel like they really know a lot about that time period, which is like probably outside of the current monarch, like probably the one of the, in, in the Glorious Revolution, probably the richest part of British history, right? Right. And like. We're just kind of like, I would just say we're kind of ahead of the game and it's weird because they're still alive. But like, there's an appreciation for history where historians and dramatists and people like Shakespeare have always filled in the gaps. Like, the way that we understand, I think, a lot of British history is heavily informed by Shakespeare and the way that he tells stories. Right. Or whoever Shakespeare may have been. I subscribe to the theory as more than one man. Um, Do you? I do. Okay. Um, But— it's weird because they're still alive, but at no point in history have we just gotten, like, one clear version of a historical figure, you know? Okay. And so, it's cool that town and country played the SEL game, and anytime you Google a Crown episode, the first thing that comes up is t- the town and country article explaining to you what really happened. Like, <laughs> we're, we've, we've all been there, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you can fact check it, but I also think that probably the spirit of like the middle age male crisis in 1967 after the or 69 when they have to come to grips with the fact that they will not be the first person to walk on the moon or do something nearly as significant yeah. as Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin the second dude is like probably real and i think that the way that the the queen had to negotiate the meaning of the monarchy as the prime minister became even more Crucial, which is a big part of season three. Yeah, it's like, really well put. It's real. So, yeah. the, I mean, I think that, that is like a meta, it's it's a really good image of get, getting older anyway, is that you sort of slowly feel yourself slipping into spectatorship rather than participating. Yeah. yeah. And also, like, and that's that speed, that's the conversation between Alice and uh, Mountbatten. Yeah. When they're like, you know, and she's like, we're, we're, we're old. We're not, it's like, what do we, he's like, I, I still feel like I need to do something. And she's like, you don't do anything. We're just going to sit back and watch until we die. I don't know. Like, if, if it's historical fiction irresponsible. I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, Yale Doctor is one of my favorite writers. So it's easy for me to say. And Ragtime's one of my favorite mm-hmm. books. Yeah. But like, that's not the final word on, you know, turn of the century race and Emma Goldman. So yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I just, just. It's interesting. I was like, I was. Because of Irishman, and no spoilers, but Irishman is a major part of it is the assassination of JFK. Uh, I was rereading parts of Libra by Don mm-hmm. DeLillo, which is his book about Oswald, but is also about the assassination. And, you know, obviously he takes, you could say he takes some liberties. You could say that he's he's doing a like a slightly fictionalized idea of of what a lot of people believe, that it was this combination of sort of nefarious forces in the world that led to Kennedy's death. But what he's really trying to articulate is a way of understanding why this, how this possibly could have happened and what the world's reaction was to it. Yeah. I also think um, this is like a particular hobby horse of mine and just a pet interest. I have spent, you know, the last 18 years being very interested in the ways that 9-11 has been memorialized in novels. And I've read basically every novel that incorporates 9-11 and disaster fiction in general. Mm -hmm. And I think that— Did you read Falling Man? I did. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I, I've really read pretty much all of them. Um, again, no spoilers, but when I was reading, um, well, this is kind of a spoiler, sorry, but when I was reading one of my favorite books of 2018, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, mm-hmm. it starts basically in the winter of 2001, and I was like, oh, this is leading up to a 9-11 set piece, uh-huh. and it's just these famous people and famous events become frames for everyone to understand the world they're in. Yeah. The, the crown is just more overt, and it's in um, the way it incorporates history and everything, but I I just think it's a more, like, obvious example of editorializing recent history. And it's just weird because all these people are still alive and there's all, and there's people who— And the actors are too fucking good, so we wound up liking these people yeah. that maybe we should put under more of a yeah. scrutiny. Yeah. I mean— <laughs> Shout out to Albert. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> or Andrew, rather. But it was just such a beautiful magisterial show that is certainly very pro-monarchy, but— I mean, how much do you just love Prime Minister Wilson? I mean, yeah. what a be- what a beautiful character, and their friendship is really beautiful. And I think the way that she kind of interrupts everything that's happening in the home when Winston Churchill dies is also like a really beautiful moment. And you know, it's it's very respectful of the importance of the Prime Minister, which is yeah. which is cool. And uh, I don't know, it's just a really beautiful show. And the it's it's the costumes are so much rich fabric. Yeah, you guess I'll get you you really do get the feeling when you're watching it that you're watching like best in class. Like best yeah. researchers, best set designers, best production designers, best you know, t- director of photography, the direction, the acting is you're like, ah oh, goddamn it, you British people. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's just amazing. And I, I think that Olivia Coleman is just the like she's in a, a class of her own. I don't, I can't think of a better working actress right now. I yeah. think she's like the next Meryl Streep. I think you're right. Uh, my last two on the top 10, uh, Barry talked about mm-hmm. a lot on the show. I thought it was um, an excellent second season. I think that Barry is a really interesting case study in what Juliet and I have been kind of talking about a little bit throughout this episode of the pod, which is. Uh, a show that maybe is bumping up against its conceptual ceiling, but I have every confidence that it could break that ceiling. So this guy who's an assassin who wants to become an actor, and then what? You know, and yeah. and and everything for this show is, and then what? I felt like season two was in some ways very much an extension of season one. Like it was the second part of that story. I think they could very easily make an incredible season three that was still Barry kind of trying to obscure certain parts of his life while also trying to engage in like these fantasy, this fantasy world that he's going to become an actor. But I do wonder whether or not it could use a, a kind of a kick in the pants psychologically of like, what if this guy has to go on the run and you shoot it in some different places mm. in the valley or something like that? Like getting Barry on in a different world because part of what made it so exciting this season aside from Ronnie Lilly which is probably you know the top two or three episodes of the season in any show is the flashbacks to his time at war and that just felt like we were getting like a different a different feel for the show so I don't know if you did you get a chance to see Barry this year I've watched I watched some of it not all of it I was I'm glad you brought up the valley thing because I was going to say outside of Tarantino and PTA it's like probably the best depiction of California and Los Angeles that I can think of and that's such a big, like, it's, like, a real cliche to say that New York is a character in something, mm-hmm. but L.A. is, like, definitely a character in Barry. Yeah. And it would be inter- interesting to see what they do when they have to take or it out fully. Yeah, yeah, right. So, Barry, number nine. And I'm going to put True Detective, number ten. Wow. Uh, partially because I feel like uh, I was very engaged with it. So, mm-hmm. we did an after show about it, and it got me thinking about a lot of the 
time period that it's set in and the area it's set in. Um, but I also just think that Mahershal Ali probably gave the performance of the year in this in this show, and I think it's actually quite underrated at this point. Um, you know, I was thinking about it more because of watching in Irishman the de aging stuff and, and some of the, the, the sort of across the decade stuff that happens in Irishman. And in no way am I saying True Detective season three is on the level of Irishman, but I think it grapples with some of the same themes mm. and grapples with some of the same ideas about aging. And considering the sort of cynicism that people probably had for that show going in, skepticism going into season three after season two, and the fact that they were able to remount this thing and make it kind of unique and separate from season one. Um, it wasn't always like successful, but I thought it really, really was powerful at times. So that goes on my number 10. We're going to take a quick break, and then Juliet and I are going to come back and talk a little bit about some of our honorable mentions from this year. Okay, since we are officially in the holiday season, let's talk about our favorite holiday movie and debate why it's the best holiday movie. Hey, Google, set a timer for one minute. Okay, one minute, starting now. Okay, Kaya. You know, one of the things that gets debated a lot around this office is whether or not Home Alone is a Christmas movie. And that's just a stupid conversation because that's just Bill. Bill's the only person who doesn't think it's a Christmas movie. But let me ask you this. Hmm. Have you ever seen Die Hard? I haven't. Okay. Well, let me explain to you. Die Hard is the perfect example of why a Christmas movie does not need to be about like giving presents. Okay. Because if you have Christmas hashtag vibes, if you've got just a little bit of sleigh bell going, a little bit of decoration, and a little bit of that like anxiety that comes along with the holidays. It's like that really great mixture of elation and depression. That's where <laughs> I think you get the, the peanut butter and jelly of a Christmas movie. Okay. So even if the, sh- the movie is about a New York cop trapped in a skyscraper being taken over by German uh, bank robbers slash terrorists, it's, a, it's like a bit of a point of debate in this movie, it can still be a Christmas movie. Okay, your turn. Hey, Google, set a timer for one minute. Okay, one minute, starting now. All right, I'm going to go a little bit more classic for my favorite holiday movie, which is Elf. Well, that's, And there's no debating if it is or is not a Christmas movie. It certainly is a Christmas movie. The only thing left to debate is whether it's the best Christmas movie. And you think it is? Yes. Okay, tell me why. So many Christmas movies are so, like, oversweet- and so, like, they want to put out a message. Christmas is about love. And while this is, this, the message of Christmas is about love is in this movie, Elf. It's also extremely funny and honestly watchable at any time of the year, which most Christmas movies aren't. I think the thing that we both know is that if it's a real Christmas movie, it can make any time of the year feel like Christmas. Exactly. Christmas, as you mentioned, is a mood. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, all-star performance from Will Ferrell. And Shout out Zoe Deschanel. Yes, great. Looking great blonde. And it's great. All right, that, that settles that, Kaya. Let's get back to our episode with Juliet. All right, Juliet, we're back. This part is maybe even more fun than the top 10 because this is the honorable mentions. So this is just rando shit that I liked this year. Dope. Do you have some rando shit that you liked this year? Yeah, um, just a couple of shows that I really liked. Then we can also get into some more internet fare. Loved the boys. Watched that all. Yeah. That was great. We discussed it. We have a really cool video on the yes, on the channel, on the YouTube channel about boys. You should check out. I really liked that. That's the opposite where I'm just like, I don't wish I had spent any more time than I did on this show. It was appropriate. I'm happy I could watch it all like in, over the course of a few days and like then just keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Absolutely wonderful. Um, my number one hate watch of 20, 
19 is A Million Little Things on ABC. Okay. Which is an absolute <laughs> trash show. Like, it's completely trash. This is the This Is Us kind of riff? Yeah. yeah. It's like James, the only good part about it is James Roday, who you might know from Psych. Okay. He's actually really good on it. Um, everyone else doesn't make sense. The writing is terrible. I'm like, why is a show set in Boston? No one's been dying for a Boston show. And it's like, not even like a real, it's not even have like a real flavor of Boston. It's just, it's so bad, but I, I can't stop watching it. This is Us is like way more redeeming than the show. Right. But I, I like look forward to watching it. Like when it's on, I'm like, okay, great. Like how long, like 20 minutes in, okay, hit the DVR, let's go. Yeah. Like, I, I like can't stop, but it's also <laughs> trash. Like okay. pure trash. Grey's Anatomy deserves a better Thursday night partner. I, oh my God. That's a, that's quite an insult to say yeah. that. Yeah. Um, what else besides Million Little Things? Uh, I mentioned Orange is the New Black. I really just urge people to watch that if they haven't. I'll shout out a show that you and I both like. What? Fosse Verdon. Oh yeah, I love Fosse Verdon. Uh, I thought stronger maybe in the beginning part of the season and then had a couple of really standout moments in the second, but Michelle Williams, I was say, Michelle Sam Williams, Rockwell. Michelle Williams is up there for performance of the year. She yeah. was really, really, really good. And also just, that was a real mood and also like some great sweaters. Absolutely. Um, I have What We Do in the Shadows. Didn't very funny uh, FX comedy based on the Taika Waititi movie. Uh, and it's it's just an excellent, excellent like use of intellectual property lying around. There was no reason for them to make a show out of that, but it's fucking hilarious. Have you watched The Morning Show? I have. Do you consider it, like, you're just meh. You don't even feel strongly about it. How many have you watched? Three. Okay. Do you want to know what? Hmm. 55 minutes is too long for that show. I'm sorry. Let's get it down to 40 and maybe I'm back in. Okay. There's a lot of fat there. I also can't. We should do like the way they do the Baby Yoda edits of Mandalorian. Yeah. Or just the gifts. Like, you should just get the 40-minute, the 30-minute version of Morning Show with no overhead shots of New York City. I don't I don't enjoy Reese Witherspoon as an actress. I like her a lot as a human. Jesus Christ. But I I found Big Little Lies, like, impenetrable for me. The whole thing? Yeah. Wow. I really did not like it. Kaya's ears are bleeding right I'm now. I'm so sorry, Kaya. <laughs> um, I found it impenetrable, and I didn't finish the season, even though there's only seven episodes. I just was sort of like, I'm done here. Uh-huh. One thing I wanted to ask you about, may I? Mm. Stranger Things. Yeah, sure. Was it ever a top 10 show? Yeah. The first season, for sure. It was very sweet. Was it because it was— The second season, I have a lot of affection for, even though I think it's a little bit of a, a minor step down. The third season, I really enjoyed vibes-wise, mm-hmm. but is like it, it's just an example of, like, I don't think that they started that show knowing the— mythology and narrative structure of like what the world was that they're doing and right. now they're kind of forced to make it into an amusement park where they're like and also like a Thrones thing where they're like yeah. the upside down has this logic and here's the big bad and here's what these guys are here's the stakes of this show and it's it's, it's probably should be closer to like Dazed and Confused and Diner at this point but it's just They've got to make it into like a fantasy show. Diner. No one's talking about diner. Yeah, what's up with that? Barry Levinson, we see you. <laughs> I, I think a problem with um, Stranger Things is those kids got too famous because per per the hottest take, I would have recasted that show. I would have been like, this show is always about seventh graders and about like getting to becoming friends and getting familiar with like the source text of Back to the Future and all this different stuff. And I, I think that the fame of Finn Wolfhard and Millie Bobby Brown, who's, like, literally one of the most famous people in the world. Yeah. It's crazy. Really, like, ate the show. I and- also think that there are practicalities that go into making TV shows, especially when people get more famous in terms of their scheduling and stuff like that, that I think 
impact that show. Is that why like, I have no in background information about that, but it just feels like they had Millie Bobby Brown for X amount of time. Yeah. And they shot all her stuff. And it, if it didn't line up with another, so they, yeah, they're all paired off in the season. Yeah. For like, and then they all get back together at the end of the season for like the big fight. But uh, I thought that the mall stuff was really adorable and I was like say, enjoyable. The American Mall is like a really rich text. Yeah. And there's I, a, an abandoned mall in Too Old to Die Young. Oh, is there? Yeah, FYI. Um, and you mentioned that with Mindhunter as well. Mm-hmm. And I do think that like mall programming is something I'm like actually really interested yeah, in. Yeah, let's get a mall-a-thon going. Just, yeah. Let's start with the Saved by the Bell mall episodes. I mean, there's some really good ones. Have you ever seen those? I have, yeah. When Zach dates the homeless girl, which is like really not aged well. And also <laughs> when, they, the when they think they're— um, Ever. When they think they're—that's definitely out there. <laughs> Prince Philip. Prince Philip, Zach dating the homeless girl from the mall, and TBD. But I, I just think it's interesting. Stranger Things also to me feels— like it's time it's it's so popular they won't stop making it but they probably should yeah you know? I think they're gonna make five, five if they can um, but I don't I don't know if that's possible I I, th- I know they're making four and they're gonna try and get it out faster than they did three but I think that they were hoping to make five um, speaking of Netflix shows about teenagers I really like The Society which is essentially mm-hmm. like a post-apocalyptic version of Party of Five mm-hmm. uh, made by the guy who made Party of Five uh, Fosse Verdon we said What We Do in the Shadows we said Morning Show Euphoria yeah, I, I liked you for it. I had a weird summer, so I was just sort of like, meh. No? Okay. I, as you know, I was waking up Wednesday, 6 a.m. to watch Four Weddings and a Funeral, so. That's right. Um, I was busy. Undone, a really, really cool show I on Amazon. Undone. You know, uh, I feel like deep underrated at this point. Somehow, we've gone from just a, a given and overrated or with Julia Louis-Dreyfus to like, actually, we're not discussing her enough. Yeah. And She's I, a gift. And I think that that show obviously was the perception of that show changed a lot in the Trump era, but uh, not not in any fault of that shows. But it was just like when you're trying to make a satire of Washington, and then Washington becomes more satirical than your show. It's, yeah, it's a problem. Tough. I felt like that also happened a little bit with Good Fight this year, which I know is a very niche thing. I know that you, I don't think you I've, I, I you've it. messed with it, right? Yeah. You watched the whole thing. I skipped parts of season one and went straight to, to season, season two. two, and it there it's still. Excellent routinely, but is also like sometimes if you want to break from the Trump stuff, it's not the place to look. Yeah. Also, weird use of Audra McDonald, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they could be doing something different with her. I don't know. I love like Chris- more stage stuff. <laughs> more- <laughs> I just think she's really like not her character doesn't really make sense. And um, I don't know. I just think. I miss the the sort of there's there's no like tete a tete on the good fight, which was a hallmark of the good wife. Right. And I miss that a lot. Damn free Margulies. I don't know. Everyone hates Margulies. She's coming for billions though. So I can't I can't wait. I have to say I love billions. Billions is just really fun. I came late to it and then I, I really enjoyed it. Uh I really like Mandalorian, as you guys have heard on the show. I wanted to shout out two things on YouTube. Okay. Um one is Gourmet Makes, which made me announce its top ten. It's uh the it's like a beloved Bon Appetit show, obviously. Shout out Claire. Uh and the other is No Laying Up Strapped, mm. which is a uh golf video show. On the No Laying Up channel, they, they're a podcast and um, this really fun company that does all this like cool stuff around golf, which obviously I'm obsessed with. But beyond that, Strapped is uh, a show where these two guys, Neil and Randy, I think I've talked about this before the show, are given a very limited amount of money, like I think 500 bucks. Mm. And they have to go play three rounds of golf oh. in a city somewhere and use their money. It's like all the rounds, all their meals and all their um, 
lodging has to come out of this $500. So they'll like stay in an Airbnb, eat a hot dog, go play around a golf at a public course. But it's really more like uh, in the tradition of Anthony Bourdain shows where it's about like the towns and the areas that they're visiting. And they did Reno this year, which is a city that I, I literally like can't wait to get out of every time I'm in it. And it made me be like, I, should I be spending more time in Reno? So, oh my God. Uh, wow. Fantastic show. That's on the No Laying Up YouTube channel. And Gourmet Makes is obviously on the Bon Appetit YouTube channel. I just want to shout out a few of my favorite James Corden sketches of the year. Please do. Actually, it's not. It's, that's not true. I just want to shout out one episode of Carpool Karaoke, which was the Celine Dion one in Vegas. And um, she's having a little bit of a renaissance because she's on tour right now. But uh, Celine Dion is like just otherworldly. She's also like a relic of a different time. Like it's really hard to imagine a French Canadian becoming world famous for her for her music going forward. Which for is, power ballads, which is not even primarily in English at first. Yeah, and um, hearing her talk about how she didn't even know like what kind of shoes she had and just like giving away shoes because she's got so many, so just to random people in Vegas was like really amazing, and uh, that was really dope. I have to say, having I'm believe it or not. You probably won't believe it because I used to watch it all the time and we shared an office. I've kind of moved on from carpool karaoke emotionally. Do you think that it's become too, like, commodified? Too many assholes on it. I'm just like, I don't want Kanye West on this. I'm just like, okay. that's a, that's an absolute pass for me. <laughs> but uh, that if was like a If you had to highlight. do carpool karaoke with Prince Philip or Kanye, who would you choose? Prince Philip. Okay. No, there's no question. I No thank you on Kanye. Also, like, Kanye wouldn't, want, wouldn't talk. Prince Philip probably would talk to you. Okay. Or he would at least get into He'd a He'd be like, accident. did you ever see the moon landing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I pick Menzies though. Tobias Menzies, like, let's just sorry, this is not how you want to end this end of the year podcast, okay. but I just want to mention it's kind of end of the decade content. Yeah. We got Honorable Woman. Yep. Edmar Tully mm-hmm. and Prince Philip. Is he on Outlander too? I think he is, yes. Yeah. Didn't watch what that. What a run though. for him. What a run. I love his he, love he Menzies. Was the fucking man on Honorable Woman. He's incredible on Honorable yeah. Woman. He's like, that's probably his most like straight up likable character and yet he's still an assassin. I mean, it's just great shit. He's so good. It blows me away. Like, obviously, Olivia Coleman wins the show. She's the fucking queen. But but you would say Menzies and Olivia Coleman may be your favorite things of the decade outside of Adele um, and Carpool Karaoke. Oof, and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Those are your five. My your starting five. My, <laughs> it's a good five. Remember we did that? Yeah. That I was mean, an early ringer bit. Yeah. I mean, it it was a good one. I think, yeah. I mean, it was like, who would you ride or die for no matter what? You're five. And it was literally, most people were just like, here are like five of my favorite people. Yeah. Tate Frazier had the best one. I can't remember who it is. It was it, Daniel Craig, <laughs> Christopher Nolan, like Vince Carter. Yeah. Who's now a ringer podcaster and two other people that I can't remember. The thing I've learned about myself, particularly this year, is that my real heroes I don't want to interact with. And that is definitely true of that five. I don't actually want to— You don't want to hang out with Menzies? No, not really. I'm just like, do your thing, man. Lin-Manuel Miranda, I fucking just love his work more than anything, and I don't want to meet him, like, person. I mean, I have met him, but I don't want to meet him again. I don't want to have coffee. Like, I just just want to love your work from afar. Sure. Let Let the work stand for itself. Okay, Juliet. I think our work stands for ourselves. Thanks so much for having me on. This is really fun. Thank you so much for doing it. For Juliet Lemon, I'm Chris. We'll be back on Monday. Greenwald and I have a very special guest coming after Sunday night's episode of Watchmen. So make sure you tune in on Monday morning. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Watchmen. Can't get enough of HBO's Watchmen? 
Now you can go deeper inside the critically acclaimed new series with the official Watchmen podcast. Hosted by Watchmen executive producer and writer Damon Lendeloff and Craig Mazin, the creator of Chernobyl, the new podcast explores narrative choices, uncovers Easter eggs, and examines the show's connection to the groundbreaking graphic novel. Stream Watchmen now and catch new episodes Sundays at 9 p.m. only on HBO.